Welcome back to Blazing Trails. I'm your host, Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. How irreversibly have we altered the natural world? That's a question climate journalist Elizabeth Colbert has been trying to answer for decades while reporting on the environment for The New Yorker magazine. In her Pulitzer Prize-winning book, The Sixth Extinction, she explored the ways in which our capacity for destruction has reshaped the natural world. Her latest book, Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future, examines how the very sorts of interventions that have imperiled our planet are increasingly seen as the only hope for its salvation. And today, in recognition of Earth Day, she joins Patrick Flynn, SVP and Global Head of Sustainability at Salesforce, to discuss what steps we need to take to rein in carbon emissions and save our planet. Elizabeth, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Patrick, good to talk to you again. Always such a pleasure. Great to be with you. Great. So Elizabeth, I wanted to start with you. And um, if you could talk a little bit about the latest Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Report. Uh, You described it as grim, I saw out there. So I figured maybe we'll start there and you can tell us a little bit about what's in the report and and some thoughts about that. Well, we're now on the sixth assessment from the IPCC. Every several years, they come up with a new one. Every several years, uh, the science becomes clearer and the impacts become more obvious in the world around us. You know, when this process started really almost three decades ago, the impacts were not very visible yet. Now they are strikingly visible. And that really came through in the last IPCC report, which was about impacts uh, and where the author spoke in very, you know, unusually blunt terms for scientists. This is a, you know, rapidly closing window to maintain a habitable planet. I don't think you can really be clearer than that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, and it's interesting in light of what's happening in Ukraine right now and the role that energy is playing in that. I think we've all seen that the focus seems to be so much on how to keep gas prices down, what this is going to mean to produce more fossil fuels, which is not surprising in some ways, but is also a little shocking because I think we're all looking for that moment when everybody's going to kind of wake up and say, this is the time to make these changes. I mean, yeah, so what's it, your thought about that? Well, I mean, I, I mean, there's definitely people have written about how this should be, you know, in addition to the gazillion other wake up calls we've gotten, this mm. should be uh, the gazillionth and first and a very striking one. If we had gotten off of gas and oil, we would not be seeing the price sp- spikes at the pump. And this is Honestly, the problem with our politics is very reactive. Uh, we need to be proactive, and we have not proved ourselves very adept at that. But it certainly, you know, people have always pointed out no, no one owns sunshine, you know, no one owns the wind. And we see how petrostates, which tend to be, you know, we ourselves, by some definition, you know, we're a big, big fossil fuel producer, the US, so is Canada. But most of the big oil producers in the world are not countries that we admire or want to support. Mm-hmm. You know, Patrick, it, it, I I read in BlackRock CEO Larry Fink wrote in his annual letter this year that the next 1,000 unicorns will be sustainable, scalable innovators that will help decarbonize the world. So clearly there's, you know, momentum in that direction, at least from the 
from Larry Fink and BlackRock, but what's your thought about that? Yeah, in a, in a prior report, the language said something like um, meeting, meeting a, a 1.5 degree future is going to require rapid, far-reaching and unprecedented changes in all aspects of society. So a previous version of uh, the science community doesn't know how to speak more clearly than, than what, they're, what they're saying. To me, that one really underscored the business opportunity um, and mm-hmm. how much innovation is required to rapidly transform every aspect of society in unprecedented ways. And so what, what we're seeing is um, that the sustainability revolution will be bigger than the digital revolution, than the industrial revolution, and certainly needs to happen far faster. And I think the point about the next unicorns also has a lot of truth to it. You know, we we can talk about digitally native companies who started after the internet, after cloud computing, and how much of a leapfrogging opportunity that presented to them. Um, and I think there will be very similar things that we find with sustainability native companies who whose real central reason for being is rising to this moment. And for what it's worth, I think Salesforce is one of th- one of the first of those really sustainability native companies built with an innovative philanthropic model from day one, built on the premise that business can be the greatest platform for change and that we need to um, work for all of our stakeholders, including the planet. So we need we need more of that. Mm-hmm. You know, and Elizabeth, you write in your book, your most recent book, Under a White Sky, The Nature of the Future, um, and you describe many of the engineers and scientists who are working on solutions to this that could potentially be the companies we're talking about. But it's a long way off. And I think there's some excitement there and enthusiasm, but there's a long way to go and it feels early. What's your take on on the impact that some of these technologies and can you tell us about some of these technologies as well? Well, one of the technologies that I talk about in the book is called direct air capture. And it, 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 it's about actually taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And, you know, it's one of these very interesting situations where if you look at, to go back to the IPCC, if you look at the projections for the future and what, what are called the sort of scenarios for, for keeping temperatures to 1.5 degrees Celsius, keeping the temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius, or even two degrees Celsius, which is considered, you know, really risky, really, really risky to go beyond two. We're already seeing tremendous impacts. We're at about 1.1, 1.2 degrees Celsius, uh, higher temperatures than prior to the Industrial Revolution. And if you look at the scenarios for for doing that, they already include tremendous amounts of not just cutting carbon, but actually taking carbon out of the atmosphere. And that's a mm-hmm. uh, going to be, I think, you're going to hear more and more about that. And you're going to see more and more venture capital going into that uh, area because, you know, we're sort of betting the farm on it, betting the planet on it already, mm-hmm. and we don't have it yet. Uh, and it's not clear, to be perfectly frank, that, you know, that it is viable and scalable. Um so I think actually it's a perfect metaphor, you know, for where we are. Maybe maybe we will find the technologies that will save us from ourselves, and and maybe we won't. But we are certainly putting we certainly have put ourselves in a box where 
you know, were we better? How's that? And the other thing I just want to say that brings us back to the sort of earlier point that you made is, you know, there is a, a large part of the of the financial world, the business world, the investment world focused on sustainability. And there's also a large part that's focused on unsustainability. And we need to get the key here, if there is a key, in my view, is getting every all of the arrows pointed in the same direction. You don't get here without that. So if you still have a fossil fuel industry that is becoming, you know, right now, you could argue, ramping up once again production, you are not heading in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, what was interesting, an interesting takeaway for me from the book was this framing, and I think it's the physicist Klaus Lackner who who's working on the removing the carbon that you were describing, talked about this framing where it makes virtually everyone a sinner and makes hypocrites out of many who are concerned about climate change. And I think we all look at that. You know, if we're Patrick, in your case, you're going off to talk to customers, you're going to events and you're flying in an airplane, you're driving in a car. Elizabeth, I'm right, you know, in your book, you're going to Iceland and far flung places. And, you know, so there we are. We're living in that world. And that's where coming up with solutions where I can't see that that's going to change so significantly that people are not going to travel, we're not going to use energy where we need to find these solutions that take into account that that's going to happen and doesn't frame it in a way that makes us, you know, hypocrites or sinners. Uh, you know, Patrick, in, in talking with customers, because we have customers in so many different spaces, how do you see that paradigm and how are different companies thinking about that? Yeah, well, um, I think first is whether it's direct air capture versus the existing technology, the phenomenon at, at hand here is we need all of the above rapidly executed with expert precision. We need to put a lot of resources in the decarbonization today with existing technology today. And we need to start investing in the technologies we need a decade from now, yesterday, right? And, and so it's some of this tension um, and you know hypocrisy or pointing fingers at different approaches that we get in the environmental space right now is really rooted in, you know, well, we actually need it all, right? And and your solution and my solution, my way, your way, like, let's all just wake more people up and get more putting one foot in front of the other. And I think when I think about Salesforce's opportunity and responsibility, getting to our customers is the most important thing. Um, mm-hmm. And that that's rooted in a in sort of almost a philosophical belief that in this emergency, I think we need everybody to do what they do best for climate, whether that's the individual or the organization. And mm-hmm. what I think Salesforce does best is put the tools in the hands of our customers to help them navigate successfully into the future. We've done that through digital. IOT, mobile, social, all of these um, chapters of innovation. And we need to be there in the decarbonization adventure ahead with our technology. So mm-hmm. we've got customers across all sorts of industries, all geographies, all shapes and sizes, all of them need to transform. And what I'm what I'm most focused on is helping those who are committed to taking action, 
to get there faster, accelerating them on their net zero journey. Mm-hmm. And what do what do we see as those accelerants? I know in an earlier conversation we talked about um, like what we can do with net zero cloud, or where companies can look at a supply chain of a potential supplier, somebody they're going to work with, and be able to see this is what the emissions look like, et cetera, and start making decisions based business decisions based on. Uh, those characteristics. Are, are there some other examples out there of, of how companies are pushing each other in, in this area? Yeah, um, I'll jump first, but I'm sure Elizabeth can can add. The One of the really nice phenomenon right now is it has to do with accounting and scope three accounting. So in in greenhouse gas accounting, you've got direct, indirect, and then value chain impacts upstream and downstream of your business. And scope three is that um, interconnected impact all the way upstream, all the way downstream. The nice thing is every we're in a new paradigm where every organization's reputation is completely inseparable from that of their full value chain. In, mm-hmm. in accounting parlance, scope three is unquestionably part of your accounting from here on mm-hmm. out. And that links action through the links of that value chain. And um, so one of the best things companies are doing is embracing that, looking at those numbers and using their influence over their suppliers um, using their influence over their customers and really coming together in collaboration up and down the value chain with with big opportunities for levered impact. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering where you're seeing opportunity for more of that leadership between government, corporation. What does that look like? Well, I want to say, you know, I, I don't usually speak to corporate audiences, so I am actually really happy to be doing that because I do think our politics around climate change, I don't think there could be more proof than what's happened over the last couple of years to demonstrate that that, that they're broken, that we cannot get off the dime. Um, mm-hmm. And you don't want to go too far afield, but we're also waiting for a Supreme Court decision that will probably be quite bad uh, and will affect the Biden administration's ability to do anything, to do something significant on a regulatory uh, front. So we need lead climate legislation and we need it, you know, uh, as Patrick said, really, you know, 20 years ago. And I think that the role that corporate, you know, if corporations are serious about squeezing carbon out of their, you know, whole supply chain, it's not going to happen by everyone doing it voluntarily. We need, you know, some either an accounting, a, a carbon tax or a le- some legislative framework I don't think that we can imagine decarbonizing the whole American economy on the basis of the goodwill, you know, of corporate America. And so my real message is we need corporate corporations to be putting as it were their money where their mouth is in the political realm and there should be no corporate money going toward P- to supporting candidates who do not support climate action and i can assure you if that happened <laughs> on a large scale our climate politics would change very quickly mm-hmm. i'm just curious in all the reporting that you've done on this where do you see is that sort of you know this is a race how do we go faster well i think that there was this thinking you know and google had this idea, you know, you're, you know, cheaper than coal, you produce some 
energy source that's just so cheap and so uh, attractive that, you know, we magically get off fossil fuels. I think that, you know, 20, 30 years into this, uh, solar panels are very cheap. New solar is the cheapest form of energy, but we're certainly not moving there fast enough. And they're, they're just turned out to be hurdles, they're logistical hurdles, they're political hurdles. Um, so, you know, I don't think that we are, I think that we have to be honest and say, we need technological innovation. We've had a lot of great technological innovation and we need to implement it. I mean, as Patrick said, boots on the ground. We need to be doing what we can do now. And then we need to be investing in those, you know, areas where we know that we don't quite have the technology yet, but we have a lot of technology to get a lot of things done. And Mm -hmm. that just gets to the point of all being pointed in the same direction. And so, for example, you know, if we were living in a in a better world, the response to higher gas prices now would be to say, great, let's use this as an opportunity to get off gasoline. But that is unfortunately not the political world we live in. And I don't see that a technology is going to magically deliver us, us from this. You just see there's too many vested interests. There's too many hurdles. We really do need policy. I just unfortunately think there's no escape from that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Patrick, this is a good opportunity to talk about our message around this and, and what your message would be to when you're out talking to customers and prospects, et cetera, what's the question that comes up that folks are most interested in? And then what's your message to them about what they can do? So it does begin with data, um, I think, in a lot of ways. You know, what industry are you in? What are the impacts of that industry writ large? Where do you operate? What are the political realities of the geographies where you have jobs or you or you pay taxes and therefore have the the ear of a policymaker? You know, let's let's examine the leverage that this organization has from the data up and then let's focus on those strategies that that can turn into big impact i visually i usually come back to you know those um you've seen these videos of a very small domino that then knocks over a domino that's about a one and a half times bigger and one and a half times bigger than that you know it it can start small but let's not focus on dominoes that are the same size and, and kick off that sort of small strategy. We need, we need ones with a sort of exponential nature to them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, Elizabeth, I wanted to talk a little bit more about some of the technologies because I, I think folks just haven't heard as much about that. So it would be great. I know there's, you know, shooting diamonds into the <laughs> atmosphere. There's, you know, removing carbon with gigantic machines. There's, you know, all, all kinds of stuff. If maybe you could just give us a, a little overview of some of the technology that's out there. Well, um, the technologies in the book in Under a White Sky really span a lot of um, environmental problems. So for example, uh, the sort of center at the book, there's there's gene editing, which is an incredibly powerful technology. We've gotten extraordinarily good at it. Um, and it holds, you know, as all technologies, I guess I would argue, or pretty much all, you know, promise and peril. Um, and it's very relevant to climate change in particularly in our food supply. You know, are we going to be able to produce crops that, you know, growing seasons are changing, conditions are changing really rapidly, really buffeting the world's food supply. 
so one question is, are, are we going to be able to shift out and have, have heat-tolerant varieties, um, and can gene editing play a role in that? In a lot of parts of the world, people are very suspicious of genetically modified crops. We here in the States uh, have gone quite big into GMOs. Uh, virtually all of our corn, virtually all of our soy is genetically modified. So I think a lot of that uh, innovation, if it's going to happen, will probably come from the states. And then there's the question of will it be, uh, you know, politically acceptable to the rest of the world? That that's a really big one and a really interesting, interesting question. And and I think very very relevant uh, to our conversation right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it just talks about second, third, fourth, fifth order effects. You know, and like like the dominoes that you're describing. No, I, I mean, I think that, you know, one of the things that's also important to mention, I think, and for, for people to be aware of, and I, I suppose people are on some level aware of it, but, you know, it's not a choice. We don't have a choice now between, you know, a world where everything stays the same and we keep doing everything the way we're doing it uh, and a world where we change things radically. Change is, is coming at us like a freight train, you know, and um, I think that when you mention to people you know, how is climate change going to affect you? Well, you know, do you like to eat? Um, that is a key thing. It's not, you know, we're not, we're not, we're talking about really, really fundamentals of human existence. And I can't make that point strongly enough. Do you like to drink water? You know, all of these are changing and they're changing fast. We have a epic drought in the Western US right now. That's not getting better. You know, that's only getting worse. What are we going to do? Uh, we need to be thinking, you know, really, really big. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of the, um, I don't know if it's a little bit humor, a little scary, but the, you know, what, do you like to eat? Do you like to drink? I think comes from as the fact that, that so many of us are disconnected from nature, disconnected from where our food comes from, disconnected from where the water comes from. And nature um, isn't really looked to as a technology because our lives are so technologically oriented in, in quite a different way, at least those of us who live like we do. But nature as a technology is a huge part of the solution as well and also has a promise and peril element to it. You know, the head of ocean sustainability on my team is um, eager to point out the oceans are not just the victim of this story, they're also the hero. And the same for our forests. And in them, we've got the opportunity to stop the destruction and also present part of the solution. After all, you think about tree as a carbon sequestration technology, self-replicating just needs light and water and some nutrients gets better over time. Um, and sure, um, we're seeing the devastation of trees that burn or get felled and all of that. But without a doubt, we need to stop deforestation still happening at about an acre a second. We need to focus on the biodiversity that comes with our existing forest and, and recapture that biodiversity, the job creation, the opportunities for um, community to, to be part of the solution. So. Um, yes to the technological future ahead, but also um, in all of this, hopefully a return and a reconnection to the epic power of nature. 
Mm-hmm. Elizabeth, I think you looked into trees in, your, in the last book. Can you talk a little bit about that and the, uh, and the efforts there? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I completely agree with Patrick. I mean, forests are, are absolutely, you know, crucial. There's tremendous amounts of, of carbon sequestered now in our forests. And every time, you know, a big part of our carbon emissions are cutting down forests so, uh, and land use change. The primary source is fossil fuel emissions, but but land use change is, is, is also very significant. So, you know, there are tremendous opportunities for reforestation or simply, you know, stopping uh, deforestation. Uh, and then, you know, trees take up carbon as they grow. So in the sort of short to medium term, you know, reforestation is a big, it could, could draw down a significant amount of carbon to a certain extent. The effects, you know, are sometimes exaggerated, um, but but they certainly could be significant and they would have serve a double purpose of, you know, reforestation and recreating habitat. Um, so that's key. In the long term, I mean, then you do get into some kind of wild things because trees die, and when they die, they give up their carbon. So then you have the thing of, well, can you prevent them from doing that? Can you, you know, dump them in the bottom of the ocean or something like that? You have, you know, people talking about building out of wood so that those mm-hmm. – um, so to prevent rot, you really need to prevent those trees from rotting. Um, mm-hmm. But as forests grow, they, they are taking up carbon. Okay, wonderful. So I would love to just do a closing thought from each of you. And we did it a little bit, um, but I think Elizabeth, again, I, I really appreciate you doing this and, and speaking to this audience. And so if there's if there's anything more that you wanted to sort of communicate to a more, you know, business audience about what they should be thinking about, what we can do, you know, that would be great. Well, my, my message is, if I could speak to all of corporate American in one spot, it would be, please put your money where your mouth is. There's a lot of talk, but talk, to use another cliche, talk is cheap. And we really need to see action. And we really need to see, once again, all the arrows pointing in the same direction. We need to see corporations working on their own operations. And we also need to see them working with their fellow peers. And we need to see them supporting the kind of accounting rules that are going to push this forward, which, you know, once again, we recently saw someone torpedoed at the Federal Reserve precisely because she was pushing this sort of thing. So that's not good politics, in my view. Uh, And we need to see supporting candidates and policies at all levels of government that are going to move this forward. Otherwise, even if you're a well-intentioned, but, you know, part of your budget is going towards, uh, you know, just supporting that that person who uh, has some other part of your agenda that you're interested in, but he or she is trying to undermine climate progress, then that is self-defeating. Okay, great. And Patrick, from your perspective, what's your advice? Yeah, companies are steered by individual listeners like those of you out there. And I don't I don't know a single individual whose climate journey didn't begin with something like, I saw something broken that woke me up and I started taking action. So whatever organization you're in, use your voice. You're prepared. You're in this adventure already and we need everyone's help. So the best thing you can do is focus on big scale change, grab the reins of the organization that you're a part of and start helping us steer it towards the better. Okay, great. Well, that was fantastic. Elizabeth Colbert, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And Patrick Flynn, thank you for being on Blazing Trails again. Great to be with you again. And thank you, Elizabeth. Great to speak with you. 
That was Pulitzer Prize-winning climate journalist Elizabeth Colbert with Patrick Flynn, SVP and Global Head of Sustainability at Salesforce. You can learn more by heading over to salesforce.com slash sustainability. We've got information about our net zero cloud to track, analyze, and report on your company's environmental data. Or head over to Trailhead, our free learning platform to take our climate action trail and learn how business, government, and individuals can drive climate change solutions. Thanks for listening today. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Michael Revo from Salesforce Studios. 